I invite you to take your Bible and open to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 is where we are going to be this Lord's Day. Remembering, of course, that yes, seven days later, the Lord Jesus Christ is very much alive, risen from the grave, risen, regnant, our great God and King. What a privilege for us to gather as God's people, to be able to open his word, to hear him speak, that he would be our guide and teacher. Luke 19 is where we are this Lord's Day in a message entitled, To Seek and to Save. We'll read the entirety of the account. We'll go to God in prayer asking for his help, as well as again asking that God would strengthen Pastor Carey as he's away. And yes, it's our joy to be able to share him with another ministry as he's blessed us so he gets to bless others. And if you're visiting, that just means you have to come back next week. Luke chapter 19, let's read the account. He entered Jericho, that is Jesus, and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they, that is the crowd, saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything... I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Father in heaven, We look to you now, thankful for giving us this precious word, that as we open it and as you open our eyes, we see and behold the great Savior that you've given, the great Savior whom you sent forth, your very Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us by means of this passage to see him for who he is, to bask in glory in his greatness, to find comfort and hope and encouragement in the kind of Savior that he is. Strengthen us, strengthen also Pastor Carey. Help us, Lord, to preach Christ by the Spirit of Christ all for the praise and honor of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.
acoustics, acting, age. The thread that brings them together, conversion. Take acoustics. The Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon was scheduled to preach at the Crystal Palace, a large venue that would hold upwards of 20,000 people. A few days before the scheduled event, Spurgeon was there to do the mic check of the 1800s, where he would stand and with his voice proclaim to test the acoustics. As he began to test the acoustics, he repeated a simple line from the Bible, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Unbeknownst to Spurgeon, there happened to be a worker at the Crystal Palace in one of the galleries preparing for that event. He, not knowing Spurgeon would be there as he's going about his work, suddenly is hearing a voice proclaiming through this large venue, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The worker stopped in his tracks, put down his tools, went home, for he had come under conviction of sin, and God saved him. Quite incredible. Take acting. Go to the 1700s to a group known as the Hellfire Club, a group of young men gathered in England who would be in a pub taking time to mock and make fun of gospel preachers. One by one, they would take their turn imitating and acting, giving their best impression of these preachers, particularly a man by the name of George Whitfield. And how on one occasion, there in the pub, the men imitating and acting like Whitfield in the midst of preaching, it came time for one of the young men, a Mr. Thorpe, who stood up, took on Whitfield's appearance, manner, and demeanor, and began to imitate Whitfield preaching from the verse, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And in the midst of this impression, as Thorpe was acting and all the friends around him uh, swelling in laughter, Mr. Thorpe's heart was pierced. He came under conviction of sin and was converted, literally saved from hellfire. Quite incredible. Take age. Let me introduce you to a man named Luke Short. When he's 15, he in England sat under a sermon preached by the pastor John Flavel. Flavel preached from the verse, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, he is to be accursed. Not long after this sermon, Mr. Short, who at the time again was 15, boarded a boat with his family sailed across the Atlantic and took up residence in the New World, America, where he then would live in New England, living a long life 
as a farmer. It came about that one day, 85 years after that sermon, at the age of 100, still in good health, still with mental acuity, as he took a break in the field, Mr. Short sat there and reflected on the uniquely long life that he had lived. And wouldn't you have it? Mr. Short remembered a particular sermon. The sermon Flavel preached when he was 15. He remembered the text. He remembered the words. He then reflected on his long life and even the warning that he had lived with no love for the Lord Jesus Christ. What happened? There in the field that day, 85 years later after hearing the gospel, Mr. Luke Short was saved. He was converted. He lived for six more years as a faithful follower and lover of the Lord Jesus Christ. The thread tying these all together the amazing reality of conversion. When we speak of conversion, we simply mean when a person realizes they are a sinner, places their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, when God saves someone, converts someone, and changes them from the inside out. That no doubt for each and every person who is converted, the occasion can be different. Could be the Crystal Palace, could be the pub, could be a field. Perhaps for you it was in a bedroom, in a church pew, in your car pulled along the side of the road. While the occasion of conversion can be unique and different to each person, each together, the thread that binds them reveals a Savior who is quite extraordinary. In fact, the occasion could even be a sycamore tree, such as what we're going to see this morning. That this morning, as we look at a very unique account where a man who climbed up into a sycamore tree, yes, you know him well, Zacchaeus, that this man would be converted, and as he was converted, learning of his salvation, we get a new glimpse, a new insight into the extraordinary Savior who stands behind every real conversion. As J.C. Ryle would said of the passage in front of us, these verses describe the conversion of a soul and should be frequently studied by Christians. No doubt this morning, we're going to learn a little bit of what it looks like when someone is converted. But not only that, Ryle says, the Lord never changes. What he did for the man before us, he's willing and able to do for any one of ourselves. Again, preserved in this passage is an extraordinary conversion that reveals an extraordinary Savior whom we will see as we walk through this account. We admit and we recognize as we begin in our text this morning, we're entering into what's really the very end of a journey 
a journey that began back in Luke chapter 9, that Jesus, as he would go about for three years his earthly ministry, going about doing good deeds, going about performing miracles, why? To back up and verify the great claims that he made, him proclaiming, him telling all, he's the long-awaited-for Messiah, the true and better Adam. That in Luke's gospel, in chapter 9, verse 51, the hinge upon which the whole gospel account turns, in fulfillment of a messianic prophecy in Isaiah 50, verse 7, Luke records Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. Again, revealing he came to this earth with a very clear mission in mind. A rescue mission, indeed, to save. Luke will then record from chapter 951 all the way to our chapter, in fact, a few verses ahead, verse 27, a long narrative account, story after story after story, Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem. With story after story, encounter after encounter, him even in his final moments making clear what it means to be a follower of him, what it means to deny yourself, take up your cross, and go after him. As I said, we come to the very end of this journey, right before the beginning of Passion Week. And just before he's going to get to Jerusalem, he comes to another town we see here, Jericho. No doubt his disciples were with him, his followers are with him. As he would go about during these three years, a large crowd is with him. Yet you'll see in chapter 19, verse 1, it's as if the camera zooms in and focuses upon Jesus. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Again, we're entering into this text this morning, and you and I aren't as familiar with Jericho. If we're familiar with it, we probably remember it, its appearance in the Old Testament. You know, memorialized in song, the walls came a-tumbling down. But a lot has happened to Jericho since that Old Testament account. In all the years since Jericho, again, we're, we're joining in on this journey. We also are approaching this city with Jesus just ahead of us. We come up to this city. We're coming up to a major hub of activity in the ancient world. It's been built up. It's back. Again, this town, 16 to 17 miles uh, northeast of Jerusalem, a town rich in history, built up in glory, and even its geographical location and placement. The climate here is quite pleasant. In fact, we'd be remembering the way others would remember Jericho. They would call this town Little Paradise, the Eden of Palestine, bustling city, a pleasant city, a busy city, because where it's located, it's at the center of several very important trade routes. 
To go north would take you to Damascus, Tyre, or Sidon. To go west to the Mediterranean Sea, you'd go to Joppa or Caesarea or even beyond to the farther reaches of the world. You could always go south to Egypt with all that it had, or if you were adventurous, you could go east to Arabia. This town at the center of it all, what does that mean? Think imports, exports, merchants, caravans, lots of money and economic activity flowing in and out of this town, Jericho. But not only that, we enter in Jericho and we're taken aback by all these buildings we see. In fact, in the distance, we see the grand palace of none other than Herod the Great. We look over to another part of the town, we see a theater. We look further and see a great stadium with horses and chariot racing. Here's a town filled with the arts and entertainment and sports. For us entering into Jericho, we're not going to be bored here. In fact, maybe we're a little disappointed by what Jesus is indicating in verse 1. He's just wanting to pass through. We're hoping we can stay here for a few days. And do you remember the time of year this is? It's springtime. To enter into Jericho with its pleasant climate, Oh, just like you probably recently have stepped outside and maybe if your backyard's filled with bushes and trees blossoming and blooming, the sweet aroma and smell that you've taken. Maybe you've gone over and taken a trip to Romalda Gardens. Jericho had that. Beautiful rose gardens, groves of feather palms, and especially, we point out, the sweet scent of balsam. prized in the ancient world, Jericho, known for balsam, its healing properties, its sweet smell. I mean, here was the cash crop in Jericho. If you're wealthy, you're making your way here. If you're in business or a merchant, you're traveling through here. If you're wanting to take a few days and relax, you would head here. And Jesus happens to be passing through. Now we're following with him. And we begin to see as the crowd grows and is following him. You know, when anytime there's a crowd and you take a step back, you can't help but look and people watch. You ever do that at an airport? Maybe you have some time to kill and you sit and you just look and watch all the people going to and fro. Well, this morning, you and I can't help it. Our eyes are drawn not just to Jesus, but to the other main character in the story today. A peculiar figure. We can't help but notice he's very short. In fact, the text will tell us that. And it's here that we're introduced to Zacchaeus. If you're taking notes this morning, the account really gives us two characters. First, with Zacchaeus, we're introduced, we'll label it this, the seeking sinner. Verses 2 through 4. 
In fact, we know that we're supposed to put our eyes upon Zacchaeus because the text will tell us quite explicitly in verse 2, and behold, in fact, it's unfortunate the New American Standard doesn't bring it out. The ESV does quite clearly. Behold, there was a man. It's as if the text is grabbing us, directing our gaze, pointing at him. Look at this guy. In fact, Luke, by means of even his vocabulary, he changes the normal word he uses for man, substitute for a different word. Maybe by means of his vocab, there's a change also in tone, as if he's trying to say, uh, check out that guy. Hey, look over and look at this fellow. You know, hinting at there's something different about him. We learn in verse 2 that his name is Zacchaeus, likely meaning he's a Jew. Zacchaeus meaning the righteous one, the just one, the pure one. And yet the sad irony, he's anything but, because the next word tell us his profession. And in fact, reveal his character. He was a, do you see it? Chief tax collector. Now, you and I could read that and gloss over it and keep going in the account, but in the ancient world, to say those three words, oh, it would fill the room with shame, the stigma. Be like someone today who's a human trafficker who would profit off of people in the most horrible way. Take that thought multiply it in this time and here in Israel uh, to look and even just to see a tax collector as an Israelite, it would remind you of Roman occupation. You, both nationally and religiously, your pride would be offended because here was someone who was scheming and slippery and saw opportunity. What opportunity was it? Well, as Rome came and occupied and they were going to have control in the land of Israel, they needed to extract taxes to fund the main operation back in Rome. And so individuals stepped forward. It was known as tax farming. If you met with Rome and you put forward, you know, the payment fee, enough dues down up front, you could buy your way in, get Rome's backing and protection, where you then, as their puppet, would go and extract from your very countrymen taxes and money, and of course, not just what Rome wants, but anything above would be yours to pocket. And you remember Jericho, this major center of economic activity. Oh, the GDP would be high. Here was prime opportunity to make some money. And thus Jews would look upon a tax collector and see, you've betrayed us. You are horrible. There would be contempt and hatred. I mean, it was like a pyramid scheme. And they would be somewhere in it 
caring, they couldn't care less about how they would hurt others or how it would impact others. In fact, as I said, it reveals the character. It's really revealing someone in bondage to the love of money. Zacchaeus is quite greedy. He would look at people and instead see profit. He would look at his fellow countrymen and see an opportunity exploit and take advantage. You could think of it like this. He looks at the crowds. Instead of seeing people, he sees cattle, thinking, how can I milk them for as much as I can? And it's interesting, this whole tax system had in the region three main offices. One in Caesarea, one in Capernaum. Wouldn't you have it? One in Jericho. In other words, when we see that term there, chief tax collector, in fact, the only place in the New Testament this term's used Oh, we're seeing and we're learning, here's the head honcho, though he's short in stature. The tax pyramid, here's the pharaoh at the top in Jericho. Everyone knows who he is. He's a powerful man. He is a hated man. And to stress the obvious, to add insult to injury, you see how verse 2 ends, he was rich. I mean, pouring salt in the wound. But not just that. As I said, we're a little late entering into this journey. If we were to join one chapter before in Luke 18, we would have been introduced to another rich individual. You know him as the rich young ruler. The one who thought presumptuously, I can buy my way into heaven. He approaches Jesus. Jesus, that wise evangelist, puts his finger on the issue and calls him, repent of all of your riches, give them up and follow me. You remember what happens with the rich young ruler? Even with the greatest evangelist on planet earth, it says he goes away sad because he had much money. In fact, flip back to chapter 18. Verse 23 tells us of the sad result, and thus the disciples and we with him, we're wondering, uh, if you're rich, does that mean you can't be saved? And Jesus will say, it's incredibly hard for someone who is wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. How hard is it? Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That would be more likely than a rich person going into heaven. By the way, words that should startle us as Americans. You and I, quite wealthy compared to many in the rest of the world. Maybe we wonder, the disciples wonder, who then can be saved? Jesus says, with humans it's impossible, but with God... With God, all things are possible. Conversion reveals an extraordinary Savior. So we go back to chapter 19. Here's Zacchaeus. 
chief tax collector, quite rich, we look upon him and perhaps we recognize even no one else is interacting with him. And maybe we'd be quick to draw the conclusion, here's the last person who could be saved. Have you ever been tempted to think that about someone? Maybe you've got manners and you're never going to verbalize it. But deep down in the heart, you know, after several times of trying to be a faithful Christian and with opportunity, talk about the gospel, and each time, stiff resistance, maybe an increasing hardening, and maybe the once fervent prayers for that person have slowed down. Maybe deep down in the heart, you've begun to think there's no hope. In fact, maybe you've begun to twist what is very good theology, but turning it and employing it in the wrong direction. Again, sizing up people, thinking there's no hope, it's not possible, they're not savable. Your theology begins to do its own choreography. Oh, they're depraved, that means they're darkened, and of course they're dead in their sin. They're doomed. Why? Well, of course, it's been decreed. They must not be elect. We turn away. We move on with life. Maybe we clean our hands of it and deep down just say, what a pity. We simply stop and say, praise God. God is not that way towards us. But again, Luke is trying to paint the picture here. Here's the very last person we expect to find in heaven. He is the seeking sinner. Not that we're reading too much into it. Luke is really trying to paint this picture. Here's a guy who's just incredibly curious. Very curious. He's trying to see who Jesus is, verse 3 tells us. In fact, even that, it's really just said in a way, he has no idea who Jesus is. He just knows there's a crowd. He's powerful in town. He wants to know who this fella is. He's just trying to go get a glimpse. You know, add some excitement to the day. And again, the crowd is looking at him as he's trying to weasel his way through. They're annoyed with him. And as we learn of him being a chief tax collector who is rich, who's betrayed his people, perhaps we too are annoyed with this Zacchaeus, but at the same time, maybe also showing him some pity. I mean, to be a chief tax collector, think about it. He's got to be quite confident. But if you think about it, sometimes confidence can compensate for insecurity. Insecurity that often can just be tied to one's own physical makeup. He can't help it. He's short. I mean, we've memorialized it in a child's song. He is what? A wee little man. And you think about that, though he has all the riches and all the wealth, and Proverbs will even tell us uh, having wealth and riches can quickly bring about many friends, but not for him. Again, he's the chief tax collector. 
Everyone in town would hate this Zacchaeus. Here is a one who is hardened and likely deep down hurting, and as a result, lonely. I mean, let's have some pity on this guy. And we can't take our eyes off him because he's curious. He's weaseling his way through the crowd. He's not finding success because he's short. So, verse 4 tells us, who is the seeking sinner? What does he do? Well, he's entrepreneurial. He thinks and plans ahead. He runs ahead and climbs up into a sycamore tree. I mean, there are several, what is the term, social faux pas he's all committing here. In the ancient world, men didn't run like this, yet he does. And just as you and I would be shocked seeing a grown man trying to climb up a tree, all the more people at this time with this swelling crowd, they're wondering, who is this guy? I mean, it's the same, boys will be boys. In fact, maybe even he's revealing he really doesn't care what people think about him. Sycamore trees were typically planted along the side of the road. They'd grow up to 60 feet tall. Their branches would spread out horizontally, then vertically, thus easy to climb up. They'd have large leaves. Maybe even he's climbing this up uh, to see Jesus, but even to still hide himself. He's the seeking sinner quite curious, quite simple, and yet, as John Calvin would say, curiosity and simplicity are a sort of preparation for faith. Now we're introduced, really, to the second main character. We've seen the seeking sinner. In the rest of the account, we're going to see the seeking Savior. Again, we're going to get a glimpse into what kind of Savior stands behind every conversion, what makes him so extraordinary. All in this account thus far, we'd be tempted to think all the initiative is with Zacchaeus. And yet, all, all along, though even it looks like Jesus just wants to pass through Jericho, he is on a rescue mission, and it's got an appointment that's about to be met. All along, now we're going to find the real seeker. He comes to center stage. Verse 5 tells us, when Jesus came to the place. Large crowd, sycamore tree, tiny man up in it. And Jesus stops and he looks up and what seems like an accident, what seems like a curious coincidence is rather a display of divine providence. He looks up, he says to him, interesting, he knows him by name, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today I must stay at your home. 
What kind of Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ? He's a seeking Savior. When he finds even the most unlikely of converts, is he repelled? Is he turned away? No, rather, he moves in. He's drawn toward the most unlikely of candidates to be saved. We say then, praise God, our Savior is a seeking Savior. Praise God also that he is a sovereign Savior. The text will show us he gets what he wants. Behold, free, pure, sovereign, saving grace. Did you catch it? Zacchaeus, hurry, come down for today. I must stay at your house. What is he doing? Jesus is inviting himself over. He's inviting himself in. Just the sight of Jesus, just a word from Jesus can truly change everything. Again, aren't we thankful that this Savior is a seeking Savior, a Savior who doesn't stop to consider what public opinion would be? You ever thought about that? That this Jesus, when he goes to save someone, Perhaps you, he didn't stop to think, what are people going to think about this? How are they going to view me if I act and do this? I mean, here's a manifestation of what Hebrews 2.11 will tell us. He, this Jesus, is not ashamed to call us his brethren. The stigma, the shame of Zacchaeus, and yet Jesus seeking him out, calling him by name, giving these commands, inviting himself into his house, and also his heart. And as Matthew Poole would say, thinking back to Zacchaeus, curiosity brought him up the tree. Love for Christ will now bring him down. What's his response? Verse 6, Zacchaeus, notice, hurried and came down and received him begrudgingly, frustrated. No, no, no. Gladly. Jesus commanded, Zacchaeus obeyed. In fact, we stop to think, what is conversion? What's even a sign or evidence of conversion? Here's one. Joyful obedience. When someone's converted, when the miracle of salvation changes someone's heart from the inside out, they begin to look at Jesus' commands differently. Zacchaeus here hears Jesus' command, and what's his response? Joyful obedience. You see that in the text. He receives him gladly, rejoicing, joyfully. Not begrudging, not forced, not gritting his teeth. Rather, he obeys gladly. Why? He's been changed. You know, it's at this point that the crowd enters back in, and would try to spoil this whole scene because they are going to have a reaction provoked by this seeking Savior's treatment towards this 
unlikely convert. Great grace has been shown to Zacchaeus, and no doubt when grace is shown to the undeserving, you know who gets upset? People who think they somehow are deserving. In fact, it just says they, the crowd, but what they say and what they do, they begin to grumble. It's a word, literally, you know, onomatopoeia. The word sounds like what it is. They grumble, they murmur, they're frustrated. Why? He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. You know, we've heard it before in Luke's gospel, chapter 15, verse 2. The Pharisees grumbled and said the same thing. People who are self-righteous, a person who is self-righteous. Oh, when grace is displayed, unmerited favor is extended towards someone who is clearly not deserving how quickly someone gets mad, someone shows anger, someone even thinks, how could you treat someone that way? How could you give time to someone like that? Notice even, they're not angry at Zacchaeus. They have the audacity to show this anger and grumble against Jesus. What a wonder a self-righteous person can be. sound just like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. I mean, here's an active fulfillment of what we remember from Isaiah 53, verse 3. He, that is Jesus, was despised, and we didn't esteem him. Here's the crowd looking at Jesus, despising him, not esteeming him. Here is this sinner Jesus pays no regard to it. He sought him. He finds him. He saves him. Zacchaeus evidences this change with joyful obedience. Now also another sign of genuine conversion. When someone's truly saved, what are you going to find? Humble repentance. Zacchaeus tells us in verse 8, and in fact, it just says Zacchaeus stopped. We don't know exactly where this is in the whole story. Some think this is back in the privacy of Zacchaeus' home with him and Jesus one-on-one. I think the flow, the rhythm of the passage, likely it's still with this hostile crowd all around them. And yet the where of humble repentance doesn't matter. The who does. Notice who he directs this to, who he says this to. Verse 8, to the Lord, behold, Lord. Again, just a second ago, he's just curious, not knowing who Jesus is, and yet in an instant, when Jesus finds him, oh, now he knows who Jesus is. Now he humbly acknowledges Jesus as Lord and wants to express in evidence this humble repentance, even not just revealing his view of Jesus has changed, his view of other people have changed. How do we know that? He says, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. 
In fact, better translated, I give or even I am giving. His humble repentance isn't in the future tense, it's present. It means now, there in the moment. He doesn't defer it, he doesn't put it off. But now, today, I will gladly and freely give up, note, half of my possessions. And you think, Jericho, with all its economic activity, Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, all the wealth, all the income, all the property, the full portfolio. And he says here in this instant, though money was once my idol and my God, I will gladly, humbly repent and give up half of it to the poor. Again, the issue isn't if you have money, but rather if money has you. And at least here with Zacchaeus, he's evidencing money doesn't grip him no longer. In fact, you could hear this, maybe you young person sitting here and think, he's crazy. How is he going to just give away all of his money? We'll put it like this. It's easy when you find a greater treasure. And is there a greater treasure than the Lord Jesus Christ? Does anything compare to this Savior? That's why there's that old hymn, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. Oh, Zacchaeus willingly does this. And not only that, he then reflects how he has hurt people. And he has. He says, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and he's acknowledging in the way he says it, he has. He says, I'll pay him back. I'll make restitution as an evidence of my repentance. The Old Testament law, in most instances, simply said, pay back someone what you owe them and add 20%. If it's an extreme case, pay them back and double it. But here, what great repentance, he says, I'll pay back fourfold. Thinks that's extreme At times, humble repentance, if it need be, it will be radical, and it is always costly. But what is that compared to what he's gained? And to clarify, this joyful obedience and the humble repentance, they are signs, they are evidence of the change that's taken place. He's not doing this in order to get salvation. No, rather, he has salvation. Jesus has found him and changed and saved him. And the fruit and evidence of it is his joyful obedience and humble repentance. Such that Jesus then will seal and settle. Verse 9, today, today salvation has come to this house. He too now is a son of Abraham, not just a physical descendant, but spiritually a son of Abraham. He possesses real saving faith. And again, you and I think, why why Zacchaeus? Why is this account preserved? Why even the details of him climbing up in a sycamore tree? Again, the occasion of someone's conversion can be different. Yet each conversion reveals an extraordinary Savior, which is why he came, which is why he humbled himself and took on human form. 
Begin to be reminded out of Jesus' own mouth, verse 10, here's his rescue mission, here's his very heartbeat. The Son of Man, he came to seek and to save the lost. What purpose, what intention, what kindness, what grace. And even to think the lost broadly, categorically, however you want to fill in the details, whatever it even might be that describes you, whether you be like Zacchaeus in bondage to the love of money, or perhaps in bondage to something else. You could be the skeptic, the mocker, the idolater, the adulterer, the murderer, the thief, the liar, the covetous, or even the self-righteous. And yet the good news, you as a lost person, this Jesus came for such a person like you. He's able to save, able to save to the uttermost. And he, with his free, rich grace, as Matthew Poole would say, it doesn't seek a worthy object but rather makes the object worthy and therefore loves it. Again, what we're to take away from this is this shocking display of God's unmerited grace. That's what grace is. Did Zacchaeus do anything to earn it? Did Zacchaeus do anything to deserve it? Here's the most unlikely convert And this Savior saves him. And this Savior can do the same for you. Perhaps even by means of curiosity, you find yourself sitting here again this Sunday. Someone invited you. A family member brought you here. You even sit in here wondering, who is this Jesus? Oh, the good news. He's come to seek and to save someone like you. Not that you earn it, not that you work for it, but that he would invite himself, even sovereignly enter in and change your heart. What does he ask even of you? Simply that you would look to him, that you would trust in him, that you finally for the first time would look away from any of your own righteousness or even any of your own sin, thinking that that's some hindrance to keep you from him. No, no. The lost as a whole, the lost categorically, you find yourself in that category, here's the seeking Savior for such a person like you, like me, and like Zacchaeus. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful account and this wonderful Savior who reveals his extraordinary saving power by saving this most unlikely convert. This brings us hope. This brings us strength and encouragement. Oh, we praise you. Oh, we thank you. And we even now ask that in your sovereign grace that you would seek and save the lost here or even by live stream person, someone joining us today. We ask this for our Savior's sake. Amen.